Sorry, I didn't know we were celebrating your birthday early. But I'll soon have a meeting in Bucharest and we'll bring your gift. Sure, anytime. Just ring the bell. You might be surprised. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We're at episode 150 today, which is hard to believe. Congratulations! Thank you, same to you. And it is back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? Well, Cole, I decided long ago (laughs) never to walk in anyone's shadow because if I fail or I succeed, at least I'll live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. I might argue that point right now. Okay, fine. Well, anyway, I selected Tony Erdban from 2016, written and directed by Maren Ada with Sandra Hewler and Peter Simonashek. It's about a practical joking father who tries to reconnect with his hardworking daughter by creating an outrageous alter ego and then inserting himself in her life. So before we get started, I just wanted to mention briefly the two main actors playing father and daughter. I don't know about for you, but Peter Simonashek was totally new to me, even though his first credit is from 1974. Yeah, much to my shame, it's the same for me. Absolutely. We've got to get in on his filmography. Sandra Hewler, though, for me, I first saw in Requiem back in 2006, and I've recommended that on this show. She last year did Hamlet portraying Hamlet, and I would love to see that. Do you know if that was just for the stage, or did they record that performance at all? I believe it was for television. Okay. So keep your eyes peeled for that one, because you're our collector, so you know how to track things down. Now, let's talk about director Maren Ada as well. This was her third feature film, and she said, of the inspiration for this film, I had the wish for a long time to make something about this family topic. About the roles everybody played, about all these rituals, things that repeat themselves again and again, and to have the other side. About the wish to break out of this, to maybe start from zero. And I found out during writing that the father-daughter thing is a very emotional topic. This children-parents thing, there's a lot of secret aggression, secret longing, secret fears in that. I could use that very well. Well, mission accomplished, I would say, in that case, for sure. And then it's probably not surprising that she based the character of Winfried Conradi loosely on her own father. He did the whole fake teeth in the mouth joke. Now, I did notice that there's an American remake that's been announced. Kristen Wiig is in the main role in that. I don't know what's going to happen with that, though. I think I've also seen whispers of Jack Nicholson playing the father. So maybe it will come out, maybe it won't. But anyway, are you ready to get into the film? Yeah, let's do it. Well, we're seconds into the film, and I think a pretty complete picture of Winfried, the father, has already been created, and I know that you had a very strong reaction right away. I'm going to give the patented Erica Long yes and no answer to that part of your statement about it being a complete picture. Okay, so then maybe there's more to him than meets the eye? I think so, and I'm glad of it being both, because the latter part of that answer is what ultimately saved the film for me. On one level, yes, he is a nightmare, and it gives us a pretty thorough picture of that part of him. Even just delivering a package to this guy is an ordeal. His piano student quits, the old lady just rolls her eyes at his makeup. To be around this type of person, the life of the party, quote-unquote, the guy who always has to crack a joke at the register or with the waiter, the guy who can't, just for once, Shut up is exhausting and beyond exhausting. I think excruciating is what I would say. Because you are yelling at the scream. (laughs) And I think maybe also me. Again, little from column A, little from (laughs) column B. These people, they've just convinced themselves that they are working to everyone's benefit because the alternative 
is too painful for them to consider, I think. They think, do you think, that they're bringing joy into people's lives, that they're bringing some much-needed humor? Oh, I absolutely think that they do. They don't understand that the people that are smiling through this are doing so not because it is bringing us joy. And I am speaking as a person who has endured this, who has been that cashier, has been that service person. We are smiling because we have to. And you are embarrassing your family that is with you to the point of literal physical pain. I've looked over your shoulder and seen the silent apologies in their eyes for 20 plus years. I've seen kids slink behind towards the exit to try to separate themselves from that kind of behavior. Here's your litmus test. If the person you are inflicting your tight five upon cannot just turn on their heel and walk away from the situation, you are exploiting them and the power dynamic that exists between you. Gosh, I had not thought of that aspect of it. Yeah. What puts you, quote unquote, in charge as the customer or consumer that can potentially cause them serious problems if they don't play along with your garbage. So rule of thumb, if they can't walk away, you must walk away. And I know all you lives at the party out there are saying to yourselves, now, hold on, I can't hear you over the deafening cheers of my service industry brethren right now. So just keep it to yourself. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Ask anyone that will tell you the truth. Anyone that you trust to tell you the truth, you need to knock it off. But back to what you were asking about, where I quibble with your original characterization is that it's not a complete picture of the man, fortunately. Though I was questioning that early on. Like you said, I was upset. Loudly. So I'm wondering at this point, as a viewer, not as you and I, as a viewer, are we supposed to be predisposed to like him? Or is it okay, according to the creator, that we find him as frustrating as everybody else does? Because you can see that frustration at all sorts of levels. I don't know if I can answer your question objectively, because I am not predisposed to like him to such a degree. Quite the opposite, obviously. I think I probably find him more frustrating than the average viewer. This need for attention and approval, it's what puts me off. I have a complete distrust of that behavior. Well, I can't wait to hear from other folks who've seen the film what they initially thought. Yeah, it was making me uncomfortable. I wrote in my notes that I don't know if I can watch this all the way through. I have no problem, I want to make clear, with cringe comedy, things like The Office, etc. This is something altogether different. And I said it was making me uncomfortable. More to the point, it was making me angry. Especially when I start thinking, are they going to ask me to sympathize with him? And then having his dog die right away felt like a cheap manipulation. If we had gone to see this in the theater, I feel like at that point, it might have been the first time in years, maybe ever. I can't remember ever walking out. I might have walked out of the theater. So it, it seems like a fairly polarizing way to start a movie. Do you feel like any of that was situational? You know, just in general, had you kind of reached your limit? Or do you feel like you would have that same reaction any time you saw this movie? It might have been situational. It felt like such a unique set of circumstances and so much like uncharted territory for me. I mean, we literally had to pause the movie because I was yelling too much to pay attention. And it's probably obvious at this point, but I just want to say it. This was your first watch. Right. It was my second watch. You had to reassure me that likely I wouldn't feel this way by the time we got to the end. And so I had to step back and reframe it. And so what you're asking about as far as it being a way to start a movie? Well, I was definitely engaged with it, so never bad. There's value in it, if only because there has to be something in it that is stirring up that much of a visceral reaction in me. Because I watched a Serbian film, for instance, and I was fine. Not once did I watch any of that and think, well, there's a bridge too far. And I'm sorry, just to be clear, that's the title of the film. Right. But this caught me off guard. I was definitely questioning myself at that point in terms of the choice, but I do know you, and I do know that you would prefer to be challenged and feel something rather than nothing. Oh yeah, it definitely did that, so good choice. And I have to say, I calmed down considerably. <laughs> <laughs> you did. And I do want to revisit the whole issue of the death of the dog and how that's filmed, but I'm actually going to mention it later, so don't let me forget. Okay. 
So then how about how Inez is introduced? She's the daughter. She's Sandra Hewler. What do you think of her? Is she her father's daughter? Well, the first thing I notice is that her body language is brilliant. When we first see her, especially in reaction to him, that slight lean back, it made me think of that phenomenon of crown shyness among trees. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. Google it and you'll see the photos. There's this phenomenon among certain species of trees that near the top, when you look up through them, they naturally develop a network of spaces where they don't touch, where they give each other room to grow. Is it called the Colrolane phenomenon? <laughs> no, I reiterate. I kid. Shyness. But it's really an interesting phenomenon to look just at those photos. And it's very similar here. In 10 seconds, and with the slightest of movement, you can see that she has developed decades worth of defense mechanisms. And via her assistant, a conversation with her, we glean that she's no picnic either. Is it the chicken or the egg, though? I think that's so interesting, and especially when you mention body language, because when we see her with her mother, so it's sort of as a little mini threesome, meeting the divorced father, her mother, she leans in slightly towards her mother, but it's her mother trying to get closer. So the more that I think about it in these additional viewings, I do see those elements of her being her father's daughter, that prickly way that people can't quite get a fix on you. And then when we see her in her office setting, which is an incredibly other interesting subject that we'll get into, we see that she has these confidence issues to a certain extent, but at the same time, doesn't seem to care what other people think of her, which is the same thing that her father feels, except he only cares what she thinks about him. Again, I have a little quibble with that, but I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Because I do think that there's a part of her that at least grew up with that father, and she may have taken part in some of those smaller jokes when she was a kid. And then I think there was something that separated them at some point, and they're both not comfortable, but in different ways. She finds ways to try to make herself more pleasing in her work setting, because that's what she has to do to get ahead. And then these friendships that are still within the work setting, but is really only to me herself in one of her most personal relationships. And so back to that whole parent dynamic, she's not particularly more congenial to her mother than her father, but he's the one who pushes. Well, I think you were looking over my notes and stealing some of them. Oh, really? Okay. I feel pretty much exactly like you feel. She's obviously successful, but I think her reaction to this upbringing, that thing that you suggest at one point there was a divergence that never meets up again, that swung the pendulum for her so far the other way that she is now possibly lacking some human touch that might make her better at her job. An overreaction on her part, those defense mechanisms that I mentioned, I don't know exactly what you can chalk it up to, but I feel like her reaction to him has become so extreme that it won't let the light in exactly. And that could also be, again, this sort of subtext that you and I are both filling in. I'm sure all audiences do. I really think about what happened in her work life up until now, because she's not a kid. She's an established professional decades into her career. And that's a whole lot of time to be navigating all of these characteristics that you bring into the job and how those edges are defined or sanded down or whatever. I definitely didn't react as severely to her as I did to him initially. I feel like I can assess her a lot more objectively. I have more sympathy for her in the beginning. But it's also true that she's a little insufferable with regard to her single-minded ambition and her cold professionalism. Like most of us, she could probably still stand to learn a lesson or two, but no one deserves what he might do. And I think you're right on the money with another thing you said, though I phrased it a little differently. At this point, yes, she may be her father's daughter, but only in the broadest sense that they're both awkward, just in very different ways. Got it. Because I know that you're a fan when you talk about working with people of not going by the letter of the law every time, but more of the spirit. And I think she, you can see, especially as you mentioned in that conversation with the assistant, this seems like a really difficult person to work for. Extreme honesty, but the aggressions come with it. And I do want to say, I feel like I'm trying to make clear that it, we're not talking about this in terms of a gender standpoint, 
but really in terms of a character standpoint. Does that seem fair? I don't want to put it as, oh, she's a bitch because she has some sort of high ambition. No, not at all. I don't feel that way about it. Though I think in a little bit, we will discover that there are characters that feel that way about it. Right. Thank you. Well, we're moving forward, and Venfried has decided to, in fact, go to Bucharest without notice in order to, in his mind, observe how Inez lives. But again, it's duplicity, because he states it or frames it as, I'm coming to bring you a surprise for your birthday. His intentions are not on the level. And just to mention specifically about her job, she's got this very high-level corporate job. She's a consultant to an oil company. And she's specifically in the process of outlining this plan for outsourcing. And it's going to make her the bad guy. It's going to make the company the bad guy. It's going to result in job losses. But at the same time, she believes and has been told this is her way into getting a partnership in the firm. I was mentioning just a second ago that she doesn't deserve anything that he might do as far as these practical jokes go. Our instinct is to think that you are an idiot if you invite him along to this embassy function where anything important might be on the line. But Ada deftly turns the tables on our expectations of that scene as well. The corporate politics of these little meetings, they require a certain specific flexibility that I also have no patience for. These rituals, you can just toss them forever, as far as I'm concerned. So each of them, Inez and her father, they make a mistake during the course of this function, but the consensus is that at least the father is entertaining, not just socially and politically clumsy. So she's playing host to him, at least in part, and she invites him along for this massage that she's getting so that they can then go do other things. One of which she's been tasked at this embassy function to basically take the head guy's wife shopping, which I would find also pretty annoying, but she goes along with it. But then we see her come out of the massage unexpectedly. Now, are you like me, and I'm specifically talking about Cole and Erica, in that when she expresses that she just wants someone to beat her up in this post-massage scene, that you know everything about the character? With your extensive experience as a massage therapist, I don't think I am coming at this from the same angle as you exactly. I understand her on two levels. I feel like, one, the text. I, too, need someone that can do that kind of deep tissue work because nothing less than that helps my body. And two, the subtext, which she may or may not be aware of, I also get the self-loathing slash discipline slash getting to the root of the issue aspect of it, too. I think that her self-assessment is usually pretty accurate, if only after the fact sometimes. They are both aware, at least occasionally, of their faults and the effects that they have on others. It's just that sometimes it comes a beat too late to be of any benefit to them or the people in their orbit. Well, my mom says that deep tissue is not the same thing as deep pressure. But anyway, <laughs> yes, I ask because this is very specific to my life. So it was one of those things where I felt like they were talking to me. I encountered people who demanded pain in their sessions. And since that's not what I look for in a massage or really in general, I couldn't understand where they were coming from. I got more and more clients like that. And when you look at a very specific subset of thin, tall, bony women, it seemed like that was the only way they could feel anything. Well, you've worked on me, so you feel like that's a completely different thing to what I'm asking for. Absolutely. Okay. 100%. So going back to this type of, and I'm going to say again, woman, I'm just going by my very specific experience, not trying to do broad generalizations here. And I just don't really have the tools to investigate or diagnose that further. But they always ended up being people I didn't want to know anything more about, <laughs> I have to say. It just became a transaction. And I knew more than anything, it wouldn't make any difference to them beyond that single moment. So they just felt like vampires, expending all of my energy, pouring all of my energy down a well so they could just soak it in and then turn around and do the same thing the next day. So that's my very personal rant. I'm done. <laughs> 
Well, interesting that you say that, that you feel like your effort is going into a void, basically. And I assume you feel like there's not a lot of self-assessment going on with that particular client. I didn't think so, because to my mind, if they did practice some self-assessment, they would go to a therapist first. Well, reflecting that back on our characters, do you see these two characters as clear-eyed regarding how they're perceived by others? I do think they're fairly clear-eyed because I think you can see it in the stoop of Vinfried's shoulders in his body language and in Inez's body language. I mean, she does have an actual coach as well to talk to her about how she is perceived and how she presents herself. By the way, the feedback from that coaching session is basically to ignore everyone. This is where I think you and I slightly diverge on that answer you gave earlier, too. I think his is the more sad situation of the two because... I do think that it matters to him to be recognized, appreciated, and loved beyond just her. Gotcha. Okay, I'm with you on that, and I still stick with the whole stoop of the shoulders because he's realized that he is not loved to that extent that he would prefer to be. And on that note, actually, we should mention, as it should be with a film so focused on the varying levels of performance that some people's lives require, the acting is impeccable. The emotion, the physicality, there's not a single false moment. I think that's really the film's strong suit. I cannot think of a single tiny thing that I would say should be changed or improved in that regard. Or that you felt wasn't true to these characters. That being said, do you think that one of them had particularly more of a challenge than the other in terms of portraying these characters? I can't really point to either being the more difficult job. I think both characters are so full and complex and interesting. And I think that they both, as actors, had a difficult job. Mar and Otto would typically do 20 to 30 takes of each shot. Well, I think it's an incredible accomplishment on his part because he's playing a character that is so large, but he's doing it without disproportionately taking everything over. And then it's equally impressive on her part to go toe-to-toe with this as her opposite, and not be overshadowed. So then how do you think that Marin Ada, as the writer, perceives the characters? Well, I can immediately tell you that Marin Ada is a better person than I, I feel like. <laughs> because I think she rightly gives them great leeway to be frail and prone to make mistakes. I think she is a very generous person, is the impression I get. Because without her sensitive hand at the rudder, I would have bailed on this ten minutes in, possibly. So I have sort of an answer to that question and take us back to something that we mentioned earlier in terms of how you see the death of the dog being either something to exploit our feelings or not, or to make us like him somehow. Now, I have a specific opinion about that. I really think that that shows how she perceives them. These big emotional moments, that being one of them, they are filmed from behind. So I don't think that the death of the dog plays like a cheap thing or to garner some support for him. I read that also as, and some other characters do in the film, that the dog was really old and suffering and it's just selfishness on his part to force himself on the company of the dog. The doggy's ready to go. So I think that she doesn't undercut our very real feelings for these characters by giving them an out. We don't see what happens on their face. We see them being bent by these moments, but we see more of the moment itself. At least I think so. Playing the dog card, I still am going to disagree with you about, but everything else I totally see. And in those cases, in this particular film, I think it's a great choice. It's not something I would do all the time in every film, but with two characters as thorny as these, it does help put me in their place and subconsciously consider things from their perspective. Because your mind fills in those gaps in the best way when you don't have it spelled out specifically for you. It's similar to that blank slate that you have when you have an expressionless mask on a horror antagonist. It provides you that opportunity that you can easily project your feelings and understanding onto it. So we were just discussing in our mini episode on the film Dean Spanley that neither of us have contentious relationships with our fathers or with our parents in general. So then does this movie still speak to you on that level or not? 
It speaks to me definitely, but not because I relate directly to that aspect of it. I am probably in the distinct minority that considers blood to just be so much coincidence. That if you have nothing in common with family, there is no inherent requirement to torture each other with your presence. If that's your situation. He is so draining to be around that she sleeps through four work calls. Something she's never ever done. And then when he touches her head to comfort her, there's no comfort in that at all. People would just be generally a lot happier in life if they didn't put themselves through all of this unnecessarily. Bad family, it's like winning the shittiest lottery ever and then saying that you have to continually show up to claim your prize in perpetuity. I'm here to tell you, you don't. And I'm sure there are people out there, like with the previous rant I was on, their internal monologue is going, it's not that simple. Okay, well fine, keep doing it then. Well, I'm going to steer clear (laughs) of that discussion. I'm going to say I don't have a contentious relationship, but that doesn't mean that I always understand my parents. There's a specific piece of memorabilia that my dad hangs on to that I just don't get. And there are plenty of things that we haven't ever talked about together. We have talked about that thing, though. But he does always let me be me. And you know me, I'm probably more egocentric than most, so that's really all I care about. I don't know if my parents raised me specifically to be independent, or they just realized I was and let me get on with it. I think that's the situation that I was in, too. And it wasn't so much a matter of letting me get on with it, but encouraging me to get on with it. My parents were always definitely whatever I want to try, as long as I'm safe and not hurting anyone else, go for it. Explore that curiosity. Even in some cases... When I was very young, they must have felt like they may not be ready to keep up with me. At some point, I'm going to outstrip them and they are still going to have to encourage me to go farther, even though it might not be something they embrace or even understand. Gosh, I'm getting exhausted just thinking about all of these possibilities. I'm going to provide a little bit of exposition here just to show where we are sort of in the film, because a lot of things are happening. So at this point, Venfried has met her work colleagues and superiors and her friends as himself, including all of these jokes that he's done, like telling her boss that he's hired a substitute daughter. And then he's created Tony Erdmann. We've got the fake teeth, the wig, the same shiny dark suit day after day. And he's inventing all of these stories and connections with people, basically inserting himself without revealing his real connection to Inez. And I think it's interesting to see some people laugh at him. Some people are sort of intrigued. Some just sort of go along for the ride in case he is actually someone important. And then back at home, Winfried has given Inez the birthday present. And this leads into a discussion or an argument about some big topics. He challenges her on whether she's happy, what she finds in life to be happy about, and she challenges him on what his big plans are, beyond basically whoopee cushions. So when we talk about this big conversation about life and fun and passion, and then everything that comes after that conversation, what is it that you think drives both of them? What are their goals? Well, first I want to draw attention to a precise and beautiful piece of writing. He doesn't just ask, are you happy here? The way he phrases it gives her the most opportunity of a get out of jail free card here. He asks her very specifically, are you at least a little bit happy here? Which to me, those two questions are miles apart. And even just having to acknowledge the tiniest fraction of happiness, she still cannot do it. But then... That may not even be the question to ask, because, like you're saying, in terms of what they are striving for, it's not what she's after. At least not right now. I get the feeling that she may be the type to think, I'm going to be a success, build up a nice nest egg, however she wants to go about it, and that there will be plenty of time for fun and happiness later. But right now, everything is a negotiation, winning, achieving, that's the only point. And then he follows up later with an even more pointed question. Are you really a human? And it's a valid question again. She is so deep in her way of doing things that that catches her a little by surprise. It could be quite the indictment of that culture, of all of us, of humanity in general, 
that he is quite literally the only character in this entire story who is not primarily focused on professional achievement and the politics of that. He is the only person we meet that would take the time or perhaps even have the inclination to do something silly or just for the sake of a laugh. That's a damning observation for there to be so little space for mirth. But I don't see his pursuits as pure either because of how much it requires an unwitting or unwilling audience. In both cases, they are failing the be happy in yourself first test. Two things that makes me think of. One is what a terrible person Patch Adams is. <laughs> the second is your uh, word choice with the can't find that tiny bit of happiness rejoinder, basically. I sometimes, because I'm me, and you know this, you, Cole, know this, maybe it's because she doesn't feel the need to justify herself in those terms. Because I do read that daughter side of it of, who are you to come here in the middle of all this and ask me these incredibly dumb questions that you don't have the answer for? And do you somehow think that you've turned on the light in my head and now everything's going to be live, laugh, love around here? And that I agree that that's all down to the writing and performance. Because I don't know what drives both of them to be seen, to be appreciated, to be loved. I'm not sure. Well, are you ready to take a hard right turn? I guess so, sure. <laughs> Let's talk about the humor in this film. It's been called the funniest German movie, and apparently the audiences seeing this roared with laughter. This is a desperately sad movie. 1,000%. <laughs> For a film that is heralded as the greatest German comedy in years, it spends about 95% of its runtime with everyone being miserable and lost and lonely. Now, that is not to diminish the success of the comedy that's in it, because when it shows up, it is fierce and incisive and hilarious. Agreed on all counts. Once we get fully into this Tony Erdmann persona, where do you see the humor living? Two things. The humor in that persona is in the nimbleness of his imagination and then total commitment to the bit. Do you get the influence of Andy Kaufman slash Tony Clifton on Marin Ada crafting this character? I definitely do. Oh, yeah, I definitely see it. And Andy Kaufman was one of my absolute favorites, especially for how transgressive and provocative with the audience that he was. And what I realized, I guess, in watching this, maybe it's the size and nature of the audience that is among the most important variables for me. It's where I draw the line, I think. One person that can't escape it reasonably is a whole different ball game from a hundred people that showed up at the theater and paid for a ticket. But that's also where respect for the commitment to the bit comes in, too. Andy Kaufman would have never begged off if the thing got out of control or went sideways. He knew what he was letting himself in for as well as the audience. And that it was a two-way street. Well, I remember the trailer for this film. I think it was cut to showcase the humor in a way that now feels completely out of context. Because I picked this because it's so dark and sad and serious. Now, have you had anyone like this in your life beyond the register stories? No, thank God, <laughs> because the closest I have come to it in my day-to-day -day ramblings are those life of the party types that I have been along with the ride for sometimes that are so uncomfortable with silence that they never stop talking. That person that you should never go on a road trip with because they don't know how to just shut up and ride sometimes, that person I have had to be around. This did make me think of a story from when I was much younger, though, about my father and one of his workplace acquaintances. This guy was a similar sad sack, seemingly lonely type person, and my father, at one point in their conversations in the office, said to him that non-committal, we should get together sometime, as a way to just be friendly to him. Which resulted a couple weeks later of us waking up one Saturday at 7 a.m., thinking, do you hear that? What's that sound? And looking out and finding him parked in our driveway, having been there since maybe five o'clock. Are you kidding? Did, did you all get killed at that point? That's no. what I would expect. Everything turned out fine. He was just a sad and lonely guy, desperately trying to connect somehow. 
But I've never had anyone try to insinuate themselves into my personal life that way, though I have seen it up close with that example from my dad. So not the Tony part, but the Winfried part. My uncle by marriage is the person that he reminds me of. He always goes for a joke. And in his case, it's all blonde jokes and complete garbage like that. The thing that that reminds me of, I once saw him belittle a service person who had the temerity to engage with his one-sided joke, and it was not pleasant. I guess the difference in the two, I think my uncle has way more privilege and a sense of entitlement with the entire world. But I think you really nailed it on the head when you talk about exploitation of that position of power. Sounds like a super fun guy. Yeah, not cool. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier in terms of the whole her career goals. Some people may see her as a bitch, but we really do see these repeated indignities of being a woman in this specific work environment. So how do you think it's affected her? Well, I think, like I said earlier, there are definitely characters who feel that way about her. The stupid and stereotypical ones, I think. And that includes her lover. And it affects her in all these insidious ways. The most appalling to me being that instance of her rehearsing her toadying and genuflecting. She's moving around her kitchen, basically repeating these phrases like a mantra, tearing her own self down with no audience even. That has to take a toll on you. Or I guess maybe not. I don't live that way. Her life to this point has obviously made her very tough. So it's been to some advantage. She can obviously bear the thought of being thought of as cold or being the villain, the faceless consultant coming in to deliver bad news and job cuts, as long as she is well-regarded for performing those aspects of the job. But there's a flip side to that that's harder to come to terms with. The shopping thing that you talked about. Being treated with that kind of disrespect. The casual dismissal in this environment of anything female, none of that being taken seriously, the way she has to navigate those pitfalls in the corporate world in the 21st century, the problem is an inability to achieve a balance in her life. And even if it would be rightfully acknowledged if she did, for instance, her data analysis is strong, but it takes more than that. Her instincts are correct regarding the options to offer their client. So there's the irony of being the sharpest one in the bunch, but then having to take this woman shopping. She has to temper her instincts, but then she's praised for her strength and incisive analysis. The ground is always shifting, basically, is what I'm saying. No choice ever being the just right choice. But then, there is the question of her awkwardness and inability to read the room sometimes. I won't say that she's never going to be able to read a room, but regardless of gender, there is a legitimate criticism to be made of her interpersonal skills. For instance, Maybe she's not exactly the right person to ask to boost morale. Some people are just better equipped for that than others. And there's no shame in being on either side of that. But again, is that a chicken or the egg thing? Well, I've got a lot to say here as well. I, I think she's clearly treated as a second class citizen, though she's incredibly successful and has continually worked her way forward. I think that one bit of praise is given so grudgingly because she is generally not thanked or appreciated for her actual competence. And I think if they really thought about it, they would prefer her. And when I say they, I mean her colleagues and her superiors. They would prefer her to be more feminine. That being their definition of the word. Yes, thank you. I think she's just herself. I think it's incredibly annoying to just try to be yourself and have it viewed as a gender stereotype. And I wonder if this film would play even differently now. The difference in these four years is pretty monumental. I wonder if we've moved forward at all because of Me Too, or if it would be sort of the same story. I think it would likely be sort of the same story. I think what separates this from other stories like that that might not be as nuanced is where her self-assessment comes in. There's a point where she is explaining one of these gaffes to her father right after the fact, and it's clear that she understands both the role of the outside consultant as convenient villain and then her client's aversion to speak the unvarnished truth in a social setting. The thing that's important to me here, she clearly understood all of that before she spoke up and made that mistake. 
But did that foreknowledge save her from saying the wrong thing anyway? No one will ever thank you for saying what is true and making them say the words they didn't want to say that are also true. But that leads me a little bit to this EU-Romania thing, too, that's in development here. It's a really interesting setting, I think. Even just at this little cocktail hour meeting, it feels almost like it's the Wild West in all the best and the worst ways. Like it's ripe for exploitation. Not great. But also, like it's a place where she can go and reinvent herself and impose her sense of order on her small part of it, which would be beneficial to her. It's a small and large manifest destiny all over again. By the way, the inscription on the wall at the office says, Don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds you plant. Not likely. Before we get too far afield from the thing you were mentioning earlier, talking about the way these people infringe upon your life, I think we would be remiss if we didn't specifically address this moment where he turns up at the bar where she is with her friends, almost emerging from the shadows like he's a character in a horror film. It's a terrifying moment. And I think she looks terrified. Oh, she does. Her shock is absolutely the correct response. If my father did this, it would be the last time we would talk. Maybe ever. Fortunately, it won't happen because he is the person that taught me to have a distaste for that kind of thing. Right. So, still, he is putting her in an impossible, infuriating position. And all she can do in that moment is endure it. Practically all she could do, I guess I should say. But he clearly will never stop showing up. This will never end until one of them dies. Because like you said, with blood being coincidental, where they don't go in that big life discussion is breaking ties with each other. There's not a big screaming argument and they say, I'm never going to talk to you again. That doesn't happen. So then moving forward, we touched upon the lover for just a second. So I want to talk about this sex scene. Richard Brody talked about the sex scene like this. Winfrey doesn't see the stifled and degraded sex life that Otta makes sure to burden Inez with. So I don't see that at all. How did you take this sex scene? Well, I want to say first, even though I heartily disagree with him sometimes, I always enjoy reading what Richard Brody has to say. That being said, he clearly is telling on himself that he's never had it good and dirty. <laughs> Definitely. I think this says way more about the reviewer's understanding of sex roles and assertiveness and consent. Her affair with this cretin, it may be stifled in the traditional sense, but degraded? No. There's a whole range of consensual activity that Brody doesn't seem willing or able to take into consideration here because she is obviously the one in control. Nothing happens here that she doesn't want. And to me, degraded implies either a lack of consent or control or specifically asking for that treatment under controlled circumstances. None of which is the case here. And I think there has to be something, and this goes all the way back to the 80s for me, to the fact that these relationships between high-powered corporate bedfellows are always, or often, I should say, portrayed like this. No pleasure except in power and negotiation. No one is having, quote-unquote, fun. No one smiles or laughs while they're doing it. Think about Dynasty, is what right. I'm saying. <laughs> but I do think she's having fun. That was my caveat here. Okay, fun, got it. Except maybe at the prospect of having leverage over their sexual counterpart. Because to me, in this instance, even though she is having fun with what they're doing, he is completely replaceable. You could plug any other man in the corporation into that spot, and it wouldn't change to a great degree how she is enjoying that specific interaction. Right. It's not intimacy on a deep personal level, I would say. There's not communication around it. Exactly why I use the phrase sexual counterpart, and I am studiously avoiding the word partner here. And then this spilling of the seed and the symbolic devouring of that. In terms of the way sexuality is traditionally presented on screen as ultra vanilla, this seems a little transgressive, and I'm glad to see it here. And even as it's coming out of my mouth, I realize I feel stupid saying transgressive because that is only in relation to the usual milk toast sexuality we get in cinema and not as it relates to people's activities around the world in their bedrooms doing whatever consenting adults want to do. 
especially Germans. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I would say I would probably enjoy Petit Four much more <laughs> if I tried it that way, because they're kind of bland to my taste. So as opposed to the very specific enjoyment she gets out of having that leverage in that transaction, one of the things that I like about this character is the way her eyes light up when she exhibits learning and growth in relation to the way that she interacts with her father. It is encouraging to me that even after all she's been through with him, there are these new strategies that she can employ. And there comes a point at which it flips back to her. It does this a couple of times in each direction, but the first time it flips over to her, when I start to see her being proactive, I love it. Now she's smart enough to look for him when she goes places rather than be surprised <laughs> by him. And know the translation of the word turtle. And I think other lazier movies would continue to have this character be fooled. And she'll commit to the bit, too. She plays along with his charade, partly because it's the only way he'll continue to interact. But it makes me wonder, is it her intention to goad him, to test his limits, to turn the tables on him with the drugs, for example? Which of them is willing to go the farthest? This is also a thing I point to to illustrate why I disagree with Brody on the point of Winfred not being aware of Inez's sex life and the quality thereof. When he participates in this car party, quote-unquote, and he rubs his gums with the cocaine, he is no longer occupying the space of concerned and or disgusted parent keeping his distance or blissfully ignorant doting father. He is a participant now. He's not walling himself off. He is front and center for her vices, and he does not seem to flinch at them. And I only use vice in the broadest sense. I typically mean that to indicate something someone does to their own detriment, but I have no indication that that is where Inez is with this. But he's an intelligent man, and I'm sure that he can extrapolate the rest as it applies to her personal life. And then on top of that, his presence certainly adds another murky layer to everything, like you said earlier, because everyone else is completely ignorant of his true connection to her. I also see it as a bit of doubling down, and I really do think that she is clear-eyed in her friends, quote-unquote. Because just like we didn't say partner with the lover, I wouldn't say these are close confidants, and I think she's smart enough to realize when someone is out for themselves. So she doesn't feel like she's betraying a confidence in the same way that if someone I knew was doing a play on you somehow, and I went along with it, and then I revealed it later, that would be ridiculous. But who cares if her real estate pal expends some energy thinking that she might get a sale or some other connection out of this guy? I actually tend to think that type of personality deserves to spin their wheels in that type of way. And speaking of that type of person, we are at the point in the film where he handcuffs them together and then professes to not have the key. The result of which is another massive inconvenience for her and maybe the film's most two-on-the-nose metaphor. But it's effective to have it right here as a contrast because later that same day, just literally moments later in the film, a total stranger suffers unemployment due to one of his jokes. And that, tellingly, has more impact on him immediately than his daughter's lifetime of suffering at the hands of his pranks. Yeah, we see the consequences of what she does and the consequences of what he does. And I don't think it's any better that Inez knows that ultimately the bulk of them will be fired and he can't seem to wrap his mind around that. Now, Tony has made a connection with a woman from a party. This is Flavia. And he has, to my mind, been casually invited to a party that she is throwing with family. And he shows up, to her surprise, but not necessarily her shock. So how does her relationship with him strike you? First and foremost, as a tool, I think, it's most useful to me in the way that Inez uses it to glean new information by forcing herself to step outside of her own view and see how he works on others. I think it's also really touching that Flavia was onto him the whole time, but let it play out because she could intuit how harmless he was, and I think she was keen to see how it was going to unfold for her own entertainment. Because it's a local person who is smart enough not to buy into his stuff and is also not out for something. 
in case he ends up being who he says he was. So it seems like she genuinely likes him, and I know he genuinely likes her. I love that character. Now, this is probably, I would say, the most famous scene coming up in the film, the one most people know. When Tony puts her on the spot and they perform this song, The Greatest Love of All. We could probably do an entire hour just unpacking the relationship of this song to the movie, the message of the lyrics, the arc of Whitney Houston's life in relation to those things. Like you say, he puts her on the spot with this song and she finally capitulates. And you are left with the feeling that this had to have been rehearsed over and over again prior to this point. Absolutely. I think this, in a way, harkens back to possibly happier times. They must have done it together. She knows the intro. He's watching her. You can tell it was a partnership. Or maybe it was a stress time for her. Maybe it was a recital. Maybe she was trotted out to do it. But whatever the backstory, she gives it her all and puts on a show and is more Tony Erdman than him and then drops that mic. Yeah, it's beautiful. This is a telling choice of song, and it's the most extreme manipulation that we've seen yet, I think, trading on, like you say, what is likely a deep history of theirs, whether that's positive or negative, and she's going for it, regardless of ability, which I think is good, and then that quick exit, because it is a lonely place she's in, both as human being and as interpreter of the song. But I don't think it matters that much to her. Still, I keep coming back to this. Being lonely, it doesn't hurt her the same way it hurts him. Maybe I'm projecting a little bit. As hard as it is for some people to believe, though, there are people that don't need contact that way that often. So I empathize with her in the sense that I see that part of myself in the character. And I also read this scene that this performance is the closing of a door. We are putting a final punctuation on certain things in their lives. Is this the emotional peak of the film for you? Well, it's a huge release, obviously, but actually the life, love, passion argument, that's my emotional peak. When she says that you and this cheese grater would not be the ones to pull me off the ledge, that's the big emotional peak for me. This is a damn good runner up. Yeah. I think that speaks even more to the point that I was about to make in terms of if this is the emotional high point, how brilliant the structure is to keep everything that follows from being just denouement. Especially impressive if we go all the way back to the conversation that you're talking about. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the very, very, very beginning of you watching this when you were screaming at me for picking it. And then I said, <laughs> oh, yeah, and it's really long. So, <laughs> sucka. Well, I guess that demonstrates to me that my feelings might have been a little bit complicated about this movie, which belies something I was just about to say. At one point in the film, someone specifically says it's very complicated. My knee-jerk reaction to that is always, nope, not really. I don't know how much I believe that. I go back and forth on it because I realize it is now, but maybe just because you've made it so. But is it inherently so? Based on my own worldview, I don't think so. Or at least I'm not so sure. But I have read a lot about this film being relatable. There just is so much about it that I don't recognize at all in my own life. We talked a little bit about our personal and professional lives and the way those things interact and whether or not it applies in that regard. And like I said, I've never had someone try to insert themselves so completely into my life that way. I just wouldn't allow it. Which I think is also another of the criticisms that Brody had about the film that I think is more legitimate. He asks at one point, why didn't she just say, enough of this? And I think I see that it's the side effect of a lifetime of people referring to his antics as innocent pranks, giving him leeway to do them, and not telling him how they really feel about it. This is the most egregious thing to me. Nothing could be farther from the truth that these are innocent. The intent, maybe. The ultimate effect, definitely not. I think maybe that's also a bit of Maren Ada having some empathy for people who do feel that it's complicated. I'll just leave it at that, Cole Rolaine. Okay, now. You specifically saying my name, I think I have to take that a little bit personally. Yes, I'm directing it to you with all respect <laughs> and dignity for your lofty position, sir. Okay, no, I'm kidding. But I do really think, like you said, generous, I think, is the great word to describe her. 
Now, Inez is throwing her birthday brunch also melded into a team morale building exercise, which like you pointed out, maybe she's not the greatest person to be tasked with that. This is a wonderful part. She's struggling with her dress, which will not cooperate. And so she has decided as the first guest arrives that this is now going to be a naked party. Some people refuse, other people play along, and her father shows up. So what do you think about the setup and the execution for this naked party? Do you think it fell flat? That is from a review. I do not. Why do you think she ultimately does it? Is it something that her father might also have done at some point? You mentioned that he shows up. That's a little misleading, and I'll get to that. Yes. But I think it's set up and executed beautifully. The very first thing I love about it is her using the fork to zip her dress completely because no one is there to help her. Yeah, the setup, which takes several minutes to me, is perfection. And I feel like answering the door naked is one thing, but defiantly remaining so and then leaning into it with such determination is another. They said give it a personal touch, I guess. It doesn't get more personal or touched than this. (laughs) Her instinct, though, I think in this case, it's a great leveler. If nothing else, me being me, I appreciate her inclination to go past the point where everyone else stops. And if we're talking metaphor, it's a brilliant choice to literally strip everything away on her birthday. And as such, she is born anew, becoming a new person in her birthday suit. She has stumbled by accident upon what I think is a really universal truth, too. People want to be naked, literally and figuratively. They want so desperately to be freed from all these rules. They don't need much of a push. They don't want to feel like they have to say things like, it's complicated. They want it to be uncomplicated, and naked is as uncomplicated as it gets. And then it's the logical terminus for costume design too, which is great throughout the movie. You have his assimilation of business casual in his own weird way as a method to reach out to his daughter. Her work outfits and hair, they make me think a little bit of Elizabeth Holmes. And then this kooker costume that he shows up in is an inspired choice here at the end. He is the only one not naked. He is completely covered. And it almost feels like having a real-life Miyazaki character walk into the party. Traditionally, the function of these characters is to chase away evil spirits. Additionally, they are symbols of fecundity and spring and all the rebirths that goes with that. So it is a very appropriate thematic choice as well. I think it's absolutely wonderful, and I adore the fact that it just goes on and on and on. There's a time lapse. People think about what their choice is. I think it's perfect execution, and the reviewer who said not, screw you. If you show up to the naked party, are you just going with it? What do you think the answer to (laughs) that is? 100%. I'm practically nude right now recording this podcast. But I'm not going to anybody's house. But if you come to my house, yeah, it can definitely get nude. If I go to someone else's naked party, I'll at least keep the mask. COVID restrictions being what they are. Oh, okay. That kind of mask. I thought (laughs) eyes wide shut, which would be appropriate. Anyway, whatever. So I think that this is one of the few truly excellent films, at least that I've seen, that features an adult daughter, adult father relationship of this complexity. So when you think about that kind of relationship on screen, did you get any new insights when you saw this? What about your sister and your father's relationship? Well, I'll answer the second part first. My sister's relationship with my father is great, too. Like we've said, we don't have those sorts of issues. She's definitely the baby of the family and has always been treated as such. And I don't mean that in a bad way. She's just the one that we were all old enough to lavish all of our attention on. But as far as the film itself, I don't know that there's anything new exactly for me, but I see for them that there is a new closeness possible. And I don't think that that could have happened without his costume. Pointing back to that. In that moment, there is no vestige of the father there as she knows him. So she can risk something more safely. Something she might not have been able to do if she had to look in his face to do it. It basically just comes down to the fact that you have to make space for yourself. And as for their very final interaction, I appreciate very much the subtle implication 
made here that life is absurd on its face and there's no such thing as a serious occasion. Well, I really like that they can finally arrive at that statement that we don't have to like each other. We could decide to start anew, like Otto was talking about exploring, or not. We could just stay in the same patterns. They have a chance to truly assess each other as humans, if they want to, which they don't have to. So beyond that idea of absurdity, what did you think about the ending? Because I know that that conversation around moments really seemed to affect you. I think it worked exceedingly well. And the most important thing for me is that, like you mentioned, there is still rightfully a wariness. To indicate that everything is repaired would have been cheap, a betrayal, I feel like. And it is a smart move in a movie full of great writing to save one of the best pieces of that for last, when he is questioning how we are supposed to hang on to moments. You're absolutely right. I felt that so deeply. Because, especially lately, I don't know if I can hang on to those moments. I often feel lately like I'm losing the capacity for it. And acknowledging that in this scene, I think it is the most beautiful and honest piece of writing in the entire story. Well, I think another reason why I chose this is because it doesn't end with this big, grand, heartwarming life change. Inez does something really interesting with her choice of photo and then her reaction afterwards to it. Maybe she's regretting playing along or it's something else. And I love that it's ended without either of them saying a final goodbye. So we have now come to the end of the film. Did it upend your expectations with the characters, with the scenario, any of that? Well, based on the fact that I didn't just turn it off in the first five minutes and walk away, yes. But not in a showy or momentous way that you might normally associate with that phrase. It did it in ways that I chalk up to, again, great writing, drawing me along, almost sneakily getting me to re-examine what I thought about something along the way. So how would you describe the film? Is it the funniest German comedy to come around in years? I don't know. Is there a German equivalent to the Carry On series? I need to look into that <laughs> to see. But for now, we'll say yes. How I would describe it? What's a positive synonym for insidious, I guess, is what I'm thinking. <laughs> Crafty, meaning that as a compliment. It gets under your skin before you realize what's happened. And what is most rewarding about it is that nothing is obvious at the first glance. And that finale, it was truly a twist that I did not see coming. But such a brilliant and funny and slightly provocative touch, while surprising but not out of character or a tonal misstep, Ultimately, I would describe it as a film I still have to think about, and that's a gift any time that happens. It was then that I realized that I had the greatest love of all. <laughs> Just kidding. I think it's an amazing character study of who these two people really are, regardless of their blood relationship and who they are because of it. Put that on the Blu-ray. Anyway, anything else that we haven't discussed before we get to our recommendations? No, I think I'm all set. I guess I should just say again, thanks for reassuring me and calming me down because ultimately this was a very rewarding experience. No problem. You do that for me a lot, so I'm happy to do it for you. So what did you pick for your recommendation? I chose one of my favorite father-daughter movies ever, and that's Paper Moon from 1973, directed by Peter Bogdanovich and starring real-life father and daughter Ryan and Tatum O'Neill, along with Lantern favorite Madeline Kahn. R.I.P. Madeline Kahn. Still miss you. It's a period piece set during the Great Depression about a con man and a little ragamuffin who may or may not be his daughter, and they forge an unlikely partnership and hit the road to fleece suckers in the Bible Belt. We showed this for one of our screenings in the Before Times, and it was a huge hit. I think everyone really loved it. And that has to be in huge part because their chemistry is obviously so fantastic. But Tatum O'Neill is the real star of the show here. It got two nominations for Best Supporting Actress, Madeline Kahn getting the other one, and Tatum O'Neill winning that award. And I think rightfully so. I think the reason that it sticks with me as one of my favorites is that when I saw it way back in the mid-70s when I was about seven or eight years old. Same for me. It was one of the first times I recall thinking, 
Yeah, kids can be formidable too. Don't underestimate us. I think I thought the same thing. So that was pretty empowering to get an inkling of when you're seven or eight. And then the film itself is just great too. It's tough in the right places, sentimental in the right places. It's both funny and witty. And I make that distinction on purpose. It's fun for the whole family. What about you? I chose a stellar film, mostly for its use of music, but it also features a very unique father-daughter relationship. And I mainly chose this because this is what I think Winfried would have chosen to recommend. And that movie is Castle of the Creeping Flesh. <laughs> oh my God. Yep. From 1968. Thanks, Cole, for making me watch it. Written and directed by Adrian Hoven, with Janine Reynaud, Howard Vernon, Elvira Berndorf, and Michel Lemoine. In an ancient castle, the mysterious Earl of Saxon is trying to revive his dead daughter, who was raped and murdered. His problem is solved when a group of ridiculous swingers arrive looking for one of their party. There's some reincarnation maybe happening, there's some mad science, there's apparently stock footage of an actual surgery, there are super gross people being super gross, and there's also very poor horsemanship. And <laughs> there's a bear running loose in the woods. What's not to like? I'll double down on that and just encourage anyone who might be a Jess Franco fan to check it out because there are a couple of his regulars in there. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Paper Moon and Castle of the Creeping Flesh. And that brings us to the end of episode 150. First and foremost, we would like to say a special thanks to Barold Lapotenuse, Andrew Pierce, and Marcus Wilson for all becoming our most recent Patreon supporters. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes. We're coming up on 100 of those too. And those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Cinema Renoir Film School, our friend Spencer Seams over at the Shoot the Piano Player podcast, the Spoiler Piece Theater podcast, Tim Thomas, and Mike Scharf. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Thanks to the nice anonymous person who just left us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>